Hi everybody, welcome to Talk Gnosis After Dark. I'm Father Tony Sylvia. Jonathan Stewart is joining me again as my co-host. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father Tony. From the foggy depths of the Pleroma, <laughs> <laughs> with, with his fantastic Chromebook uh, laptop, uh, you know, go, go Google. Um, anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about temple theology and the work of Margaret Barker, and to help us talk about that is Bishop Timothy Mansfield. Hello, Tim. Hey, Father Tony, how you doing? Good, good, good. So we had a very kind of intense and fast conversation in the video show about <laughs> temple theology. We tried to fit all of the things in into 15 minutes, which we did pretty good, but we didn't, uh, we didn't 100% do it. So let's just recap. Let's go back and talk a little bit about the theory behind temple theology, and, uh, and, and let's start from there. Sure. So we're talking about temple theology. Is a, it's a theory by a biblical theologian called Margaret Barker. She's a um, she's not a mainstream theologian, but she's also not a fringe theologian. She's a she's a credible academic. She's an alumnus of the University of Cambridge. Um, she's a, a Methodist minister, uh, and she's been um, promoting or talking about a, a theory that the roots of Christianity are in the first temple, Solomon's temple. Um, uh, they come from a form of Hebrew religion that was prevalent prior to the Babylonian captivity um, and that survives in, um, in oral history and in popular practice, even though the um, Babylonian captivity kind of pulled an, an official version of Hebrew religion off um, the kingdom of Judah, took it to Babylon and then returned it. And so what you're seeing at the, um, at the beginning of the Common Era is, a, is an opposition, really, between this official aristocratic version of Hebrew religion, which is the, the, the religion you see in the Second Temple, in the Temple of Herod, practiced in the Temple of Herod, and uh, an older, more ancient, we don't know how ancient, um, First Temple version of Hebrew religion, which is taught by various teachers in various places, among them this guy called Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, who teaches both a theological view, a mode of mysticism, um, and a stance towards ritual, a, a type of ritual practice. So Barker's saying that what Jesus was teaching is, is both mysticism, theology, and the, the Eucharist as a, as a ritual practice that survives from the First Temple through uh, 600 years in oral and, and diasporic practice up until the first century. So that's the essence of it, really. Um, and we, Jonathan and I, are both obsessed with this. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you guys have regular of, uh, you have regular phone calls about it, right? Chat yeah, it's kind of it. it's kind of like a it's it's temple theolo temple theologians anonymous or something. Yeah, it's a kind of a support group. group. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. We give it because because you start talking to like other people start looking at you funny after a while. It's like what are they going on about? Um, <laughs> So there's some things about it that are strikingly. They say, it says the, the theory says really striking things about the origins of Christianity and um, turns upside down some of the assumptions we have about the origins of Christianity. But it also says some really. The, the reason we're a bit obsessed by it is it says really striking things about what Gnosticism is actually about, what it's actually doing, um, and what the ritual life of Gnosticism may have looked like and why it looked the way it did, and why it has the particular tone of voice that it has. Um, there's a bunch of things that are implied about Gnosticism. And it says stuff about our Joanna tradition as well, I think, mm -hmm. is, um, by implication at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we should get go back to the... We actually have a good, uh, a good point to start at. And I just have one point that's sort of... Because now it's the podcast, we don't have to be as structured. But um, and, and we're kind of changing the way that you view things, even small things. But a narrative that plays out well, both in scholarship and in theology is that there's Judaism, Christianity comes from Judaism, and then there's Islam, and it comes from the two of them, and it's like this, this straight line down, right? And then uh, both um, biblical scholars who may be atheists or secular or whatever, they, they want to do that because it, it puts everything into nice little boxes, and the practitioners of religion want to say that, right? If you, if you want to make a polemical point and you're Jewish, you can say, well, my religion's older than all that. If you're a Christian and you want to make a polemical point, well, Christianity came later and it reformed some of that stuff, and you can make the same point if... Uh, if you're making a, we, we a polemical theological we point. The, 
we downloaded the new version. It's got the it's got the new patches in it. You know, it's <laughs> it's got pure bug. Yeah, but but really, temple theology and, and the work of Mark of Barker says, says all these traditions, and you can stick Gnosticism in there now, are not are not uh, children of each other. There isn't a straight line. Really, they're they're siblings, and they all come from this stream of uh, of of temple theology, the, the the practices and the thought of the first temple. Uh, and you can find um, you know, just to clarify too, the um, we're kind of talking about two Judaisms. The Judaism that we have now and the Judaism of, of the Jewish Bible still has a lot of temple theology in it. Margaret um, Barker says, you know, like the book of Ezekiel is, uh, has a lot of temple theology in it. But uh, kind of going back 2,000 years, there were this, this, this more of this opposition between the, kind of the religion of the people and the religion of, of the priests and the rulers. But now it's, it's kind of all over, you know, all, all these different terms traditions partake of it but the more you know about temple theology the more it kind of clarifies these these four great religions um so so bishop tim so i've, the... I've, I've actually started john i've started using the term i started using the term hebrew religion um, yes hebrew religion i didn't notice that in the uh as, in as the, a sort of a sort of a kind of a broad catch-all that includes all these all these different aspects of, of of where that that big um trunk and root system branch out into in all these different successor religions i guess so it's yeah, but that, that key point of like shifting the ground of kind of rather than seeing Judaism necessarily as the the one unique survival of ancient Hebrew religion, seeing it as one amongst a set of siblings, a completely legitimate and um, totally vital survival of Hebrew religion, um, which preserves some things and doesn't yep. preserve other things. Christianity exactly. as a sibling, which preserves some other things and then fails to preserve some of the key things that that modern Judaism preserves. It's a Precisely. yeah. Um, and, and again, it is uh, going back to, to a point we'll hammer home, and, and that you kind of open the show with. It, it is it is quite controversial, and it is kind of mind blowing to think that a lot of this stuff that that uh, both very religious Christians and uh, and scholars uh, would say originates with Jesus from later communities is, is actually much much older. But uh, now that I got that rant out. We uh, we left off at a great place um, in the video show because we were actually talking about what what were the beliefs of the first temple. You know, what is this mysticism? What what were some of the practices? We could get back to that. So we were talking about creation. We were talking about the covenant. We were talking about atonement. If we can kind of pick up that thread and talk about what 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 the actual beliefs are, what the practices were. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I mean, the key. Excuse me. I'm just <laughs> moving across the uh, the office to a different desk. Okay. <laughs> Here in the uh, here in the Episcopal offices in Sydney. Um, yeah, slow my chair. There we go. Um, the key. Okay, so there's a key theological difference, and the key theological difference leads to a difference in mystical approach, and I think it leads to a difference in ritual stance. So the key theological difference um, Barker is claiming in the First Temple view is that we're not talking about a spiritual universe in which, which is dominated by a single deity. And that's a very bold claim because we're told that the mainstream understanding of Hebrew religion is that it is what characterizes it is that it is the first monotheistic religion. However, archaeology, um, critical scholarship, uh, a, a lot of scholarly sources in the last hundred years really have deeply questioned this view. This is not a, this is not a, a fringe speculation but that early Hebrew religion was not a monotheistic religion. The monotheism formed at a fairly late date in the process around the time of the Babylonian captivity. What we're seeing in First Temple religion, and Barker pulls this out of a bunch of, a bunch of sources, both archaeological and by, by teasing apart um, scribal editorial stuff in, in some of, the books, uh, some of the, the books of the Old Testament, what we're seeing is a distinction between two gods as the chief the chief difference. Um, in the Old Testament as we have it, the, there's various terms used for God. El, the Lord, which is the way you pronounce yod heh vav -Hey. Don't ever say it. Say the Lord, Adonai. Um, the Ancient of Days, the Most High. Uh, now, what Barker is saying is that the Ancient of Days, the Most High and El are names for the highest of gods. What in Gnosticism we call the First Father. Or we'd call the one. Yod Hevav the Lord, Jehovah, 
um, is the son of the Most High. So yod heh vav is the national God of Israel, the national God of the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. So the, Israel is the chosen people of yod heh vav <laughs> He is yeah. their, you, you could say he's their angel, he's their God, he's the God of the people of Israel. Yes. Now, we're looking at a relationship where theologically, um, the Most High has various sons, and the sons are the national gods of the various nations of the world. And Yod Hevavai happens to be the national god of the people of Israel. Right. Um, in terms of what that means in daily life, the high priest, who in first temple times was also the king, so the king is the high priest of the people, um, at his enthronement becomes filled with the Lord. So the king is the high priest, is the Lord. These are all the same things. So the king in his person is the incarnation of the Lord. Okay, that's really important. So that process is what we, in, in Christian mysticism, we call theosis. So it's becoming one with God. So the king becomes one with God. The other important, so there's two, there's a high God and there's the, the national God. So El is the God of all things. El is the vast spaciousness in which all things reside. Um, so that distinction between those two is really critical. The third person, there are three persons to the Godhead in First Temple theology. Strangely familiar. But this it does, third it person, does seem to ring a bell. Yeah. It does seem to ring a bell. This third person that we see in First Temple theology is the mother of the Lord, who is also the wife of the Most High. So she's goes by various names, but um, she's, she's referred to as Wisdom quite a lot, which is a very familiar title, <laughs> um, and the mother of the Lord. So just as the king is enthroned as the, the incarnation of the Lord, the king's mother, the high priest's mother, is enthroned as the incarnation of Wisdom, of the wife of the Most High. So we have this mother-son relationship, physically incarnated in the actual physical son and mother in the royal family in in Judah. Um, So we see this exact relationship mirrored in the relationship between Jesus and Mary, with Mary as the mother of the Lord. (laughs) So there's a bunch of really just simple interesting things. Paul's confession, Barker points out, is that we, we confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, so there's no the in Hebrew, right? <laughs> it's not Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Adonai. Jesus is Yod Hey Vav Hey. So it's not saying Jesus is the Most High. It's saying Jesus is the Great High Priest. He is our Great High Priest. He is the King. And he is enthroned as one with Yod Hey Vav Hey. There you are. That's the theological view. Um, The other essential parts of it are that as well as God Most High and as well as the Lord, there's also um, the angel host who participate in the ongoing production of creation. Uh, You might say that the many, the host, you could call them maybe the fullness of God's presence in the world. Hmm. Also strangely familiar when you're... Yeah. Strangely familiar when you're a Gnostic. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that's, the, that's the, the essence of it. So what mysticism looks like in that is that the, the role is to, is to enter into day one of creation in which the, um, the individual person is, is not other than um, God Most High. So all things were one with, this is depicted um, in the beginning of Genesis. It's also depicted at the beginning of the secret book of John and the narrative about the, the one in the secret book of John this time of, of total oneness where all things were one in God and God was all things. And there's no distinction between, between anything and anything else. So in First Temple mysticism, when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies represents the time before creation, day one. And when the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies, the high priest becomes one with the Most High. Now this is a really important point because of the high priest theosis he incarnates the Lord, the Son. Right. But in entering into the Holy of Holies, he becomes one with undivided unity. 
with the Ancient of Days, with the Most High. So there's kind of two onenesses. There's an incarnational oneness, and there's a mystical oneness. And the, the, the end game <laughs> mm-hmm. for temple mysticism is that mystical oneness with the Most High. To not only become one with this, this Son person, mm-hmm. but to actually attain oneness with the Father. Right. And, and to clarify, of course, you know, we're talking about specific historical persons uh, in the first temple, this, this one high priest. Um, but you were in the video show, uh, something I'm definitely going to, to eat out on, uh, uh, is, is that is Jesus, and probably other teachers, open source this, these ideas and these theologies. It's just to clarify that that first temple is destroyed, they build a second one, all these, not all of these, but many of these elements are removed from the temple and from a theology. So, so you know, Jesus isn't entering into the temple and having this experience. You know, according to Margaret Mar- Barker, he actually has this experience at his baptism. So instead of that's where he enters the Holy of the Holies and, and becomes the Lord, that second God, while also having the experience of day one. Um, and perhaps we really, can extrapolate really. that if Jesus, if Jesus is open sourcing this material, he's also opening it up, you know, for his followers and for more people, right? The theosis yeah. is, is kind of the goal for all. Is that correct? Totally. I mean, you can make it totally, 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 totally. And it's a really critical point because we're, we're looking at a, so I, I forget, to set the, forget to set the historical setting. So exactly as you say, so the first temple is built in the time of Solomon. Um, it has a, a, a number of key architectural elements and, um, and in, th- there's two accounts in the Old Testament in different places. In some places, um, in the in the Deuteronomic parts of the Old Testament, you're reading accounts of what's in the temple um, according to what they what the followers of King Josiah thought should be in the temple. Right. Um, in other parts of the Old Testament, what you're reading is accounts of what actually was in the first temple. <laughs> so Josiah, when he became king of Judah, um, embarked on a series of reforms to restore um, and and the, the picture Barker paints is that this is an innovation. Um, to create a form of Jewish religion which he perceives as pure and which adheres to these books of Moses that, um, that are promulgated by the priesthood at the time. Um, and that involves removing the menorah, it involves removing um, the, the pillar that represents the Great Lady, it removes eventually suppressing the worship of the Great Lady on, on hilltops and around sacred trees, it um, involves repressing the popular piety for the Great Lady amongst the people of Jerusalem. Um, that creates this this kind of purified version of kind of mosaic Moses centered um, Hebrew religion, uh, which persists to the end of Josiah's reign. Josiah dies. Um, it's a complicated international situation at the point. The Assyrian Empire um, uh, turns into the Babylonian Empire around at this point. The Babylonians invade Judah um, during the reign of Josiah's son. They kidnap the aristocracy and the priesthood. They take them away to Babylon and they're kept captive there for. A couple of centuries, 250 years or so, um, and then ultimately Cyrus the Great, um, Emperor of Persia, takes the Babylonian Empire over, releases the captives, releases the captives. Of course, this is the, you know, fifth generation descendants of the original captives, who then return to a place they have never lived, <laughs> to rule over a people they have never met. <laughs> so, been, can I? Who've been persisting with the form of Hebrew religion this entire time, right? Yeah. Can, can I jump back to something you just said? So um, throughout the Old Testament, and, and this, is, this is all kind of new to me. I've heard you, talk, you guys talk about this a lot, but um, you mentioned that the, uh, the, throughout the Old Testament you hear um, people talking about, you know, you should tear down the Asherah poles and the mm-hmm. sacred trees. This is what you're talking about? This, this is what we're talking about. Okay. And very interesting. Yeah. So that's the, the, the documentary hypothesis um, of, of the composition of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament is made up of multiple sources. There's a priestly source, there's a Yahwist source, and there's a Deuteronomist source. Okay? So there's, there's various source documents which get blended by editors to make what we call the Old Testament material, particularly the five books of Moses. So the five books of Moses aren't something that Moses sat down with a pen and wrote or even that he dictated to a scribe. They're an editorial composition of, of at least three sources. So when you're reading the first five books, what you're reading is something that's come from multiple sources and been blended together. Not one on top of the other, but, but you know, verse by verse blended together. So there's passages that are from one source, followed by passages from a different source, followed by passages from a third source, and it's all kind of interleaved. So it takes quite a lot of 
detailed work to pull apart what comes from one source and what comes to another, what comes from another. So what Barker's doing is kind of leaning on that research and then looking at really fine details of what's present in the Hebrew. There's all sorts of ticky-tacky stuff because the precise meaning of a Hebrew word, uh, classical Hebrew is written only, only the consonants are written, not the vowels. And depending on which vowels you place between the consonants, obviously it changes which word you're, t you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so one word can mean this or that, depending on you know, whether it uses this vowel or that vowel. But then small matters can be changed by removing a small mark from the end of a letter consistently. It can turn it from one letter into another. A scribal error mm -hmm. <laughs> that can change the meaning of something from, and it, it changes the meaning of, some, of things dramatically in some cases. Something that can mean, that begins by meaning perfume, can mean death. <laughs> um, you know, so something that, that sounds really beautiful and virtuous can mean something poisonous and awful just by the removal of. So you've heard the phrase, um, uh, th "This is preserved without changing one jot or tittle." Mm -hmm. It's a very, it's a kind of oldy Englishy term. This is what they're talking about. That by jots and tittles are, are marks in Hebrew text, and if you change one of them, it can change the entire meaning of a passage. So the the art of the scribe is to is to preserve the text without changing one jot or tittle. Um, Barker's research is kind of saying, looks like there's quite a few jots and tittles moved around in here <laughs> when you look a little closely. So in the in I'm not sure if I answered, I'm not sorry, sure if I answered just, your question, Tony. Just to go on another tear or a brief one, or, or again, my favorite phrase, just to clarify, but so in, in, the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, basically you have, you have prophets or scribes putting words in the mouths of the prophets being like don't go to the hill and worship the goddess as a tree because yeah. that is a pagan thing that comes from outside of our religion where margaret barker is saying well actually the original form of the hebrew religion understood the goddess the the lady of the temple the female aspect of god uh uh as uh represented her as a pillar or a tree she had a tree or a pillar in in the temple and whenever you you didn't live close enough to the temple, you would just go to a high hill and worship her there. So that, that's part of, of the original Hebrew religion, part of our religion as Christian and Gnostics, part of the, the great Abrahamic faith. But I'm sure if you tell a lot of people who, who may be even you know, fairly liberal in their theology, you know, originally in, in the great stream of your religion, people went to hills and worshiped the goddess as a tree. They would mm. not think of that as being part of their, their worldview and their religion. Mm. Very interesting. Let's. I, I I got a lot to think about there. Like I'm thinking about like Marian poles and tree. Yeah. And, yeah. Anyway. That's right. Right. Let's, it, it, this is the this was this is the reason for the warning on the tin. Yeah. You know, once yeah. you start coming, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh God, that connects to that, and that's that, and oh my God, that's connected to that. Yep, uh, and we have we have enough of that already. But let's jump ahead to Gnosticism because um, I think that our viewers would be very interested in seeing the kind of where this temple theology connects and and uh, and what it what it leads us to in general. Um, so so wisdom, right? Let's let's start there. What what does wisdom have to do with all of this, Sophia? Well, look, wisdom is wisdom. One of the titles of the of the great lady. Mm -hmm. um, the mother of the Lord is, is wisdom herself. So she's the incarnation of, of the divine wisdom in human form. Um, so, you know, in the, you know we're, we're, we all, you know, if you're familiar with the Gnostic liturgical calendar, you know that all the, all the big Mary feast days get turned into Sophia feast days. Mm -hmm. um, and we've all kind of, you know, a few of us have scratched our head over that. Like, why is that the case? You look at temple theology and you go, well, yes, that's it. That's exactly it. What the, the mother of the, the mother of the king... Um, in the time of the old kingdom, became the incarnation of the of the great lady of Asherah of the of wisdom herself. So we see that mirrored in the mother of Jesus, Mary, um, is venerated as the incarnation as the mother of God. Like the language around this gets tweaked because as we move, you know, after Jesus is teaching, then we move into the period, you know, that very vexed period. The first temple is destroyed. I wanted to come, you know, I sort of wanted to come back to something Jonathan was saying before that you know that, that first temple is destroyed at the Babylonian invasion. Mm -hmm. So the ability to actually do temple worship properly is removed at the same time that the aristocracy and the priests are taken captive. So the temple is like it's not just it's not just that things have been removed, 
It's actually the things have been stolen. The, the, the various holy items from the temple have been stolen, and the temple itself has been raised. It is not possible to do first temple worship after that point. Mm-hmm. So somehow, the critical ritual practice that was pursued in the first temple has to be preserved somehow. So then at some point, the second temple gets erected in a, in a first form, and then it gets added to by Herod, and that's the temple in Jesus' time. But it's a heretic temple. It's a temple that, that is devoted to a style of Hebrew worship that's not that original first temple form, and which common people don't recognize often as being valid. There's an oral tradition that continues from the first temple, and this ritual practice that's obviously Barker's theory is the ritual practice of the, the great atonement ritual recorded in, in some parts of the Old Testament where, you know, a, a goat is consecrated to um, Azathoth? No, hang on, that's Lovecraft. One goat is, is, is consecrated to the devil and the other goat is consecrated to God. And the, the scapegoat, the goat, mm-hmm. the goat consecrated to the devil, is driven out into the wilderness and takes with it the sins of the people. And then the other goat is consecrated to God and is slaughtered as a sacrifice to God. Um, that great ritual is the prototype of the Eucharist. This is signaled in the way Paul talks about the, um, the role of, of the prototypical role of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb in the, in the Eucharist and all that lamb imagery. Um, so that atonement ritual was located in the court of the temple, and it's about the interaction between the high priest and the holy of holies. With the temple destroyed, can't be done. But that atonement ritual is what continuously recreates the covenant bonds of creation that holds the whole world together in the Jewish theological view. So it can't stop. Just because the priests aren't there, just because the temple isn't there, it can't stop. Because if it stops you're consenting to the ending of creation. <laughs> so it had to survive. So this open sourcing that we're talking about with Jesus' teaching, Jesus doesn't initiate, I don't think. I think what we're looking at is something where a version of that atonement ritual turns into what Jesus teaches as Eucharistic practice. And Barker leans on Orthodox sources to early Orthodox sources, Clement and um, Dionysius and, and a few other people, Origen, um, as indicating that, that there's key elements, non-written elements of Eucharist practice um, in, in Orthodox tradition that, that were taught in secret to the, to the disciples and apostles by Jesus himself. Mm. So the Eucharist is, a, is a from the very beginning, that, and just as Mariology is from the beginning, the, the veneration of Mary as the, mother of, as the mother of the Lord is there from the beginning. So this Eucharistic practice which Jesus is teaching is a survival, an oral folk survival of that atonement ritual from the first temple that's been shifted and changed and made into something that be, can be continued even in the absence of the priesthood and even in the absence of the temple. Right. That's what and, comes. That's what becomes Christian practice. This doesn't take us to Gnosticism, but <laughs> but to uh, that we'll get back to Gnosticism for real. But but basically, what what, what Barker is saying, like if you went to an HAC mass. What, what you're seeing and experiencing is pretty close, you know, or, or any high church mass to what went on in the first temple. Um, Catholic liturgy, years. Coptic liturgy, Byzantine liturgy, yeah. Russian liturgy, it's all, this, this Eucharistic practice is the absolute central heart of what is Christianity. Which, you know, when you live in a country where evangelicalism dominates, it's sometimes hard to recall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but Christianity, also, as it's been for the last 150 years in the West, is unrecognizable for the rest of the previous 2,000 years. Anyway. Yeah. And, and hopefully something we'll get back to. You know, Barker believes that these, um, that the priests of the first temple, you know, they're kind of kicked out of the temple, but they continue on, and they continue on as a priesthood. You know, they're initiating and kind of creating new priests in this open source system, which is an interesting thing that maybe we'll get to at the end of the show about, you know, kind of, a secret lineage of of priests going back, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years, passing on these mystical teachings. But, uh, but Bishop Tim, back back to uh, Father Tony's question, the um, they they believe that the first temple like represented creation. It, it was kind of a uh, a, a two scale model of the universe. So when we talk about Sophia and where that myth comes from, um, in Gnosticism. You know, uh, I'm kind of extrapolating from Barker's work, but we talked about, in a very literal fashion, King Josiah and, and others after him 
kick Sophia out of the temple. The temple represents both the universe and the pleroma, the fullness, the first day of creation, the Godhead. So the, it's, it's almost like a very literal explanation for the origins of the exile Sophia, the fall of Sophia. Mm. You know, so Sophia mm -hmm. is exiled, leaves the, the fullness, leaves the pleroma. It's, it's right there in the in temple theology in, in, a, in a very literal way. But, you know, in, in temple theology, they had what we now call platonic, but probably comes from their view, that what kind of happened in the temple and happened on Earth as above, so below. So when they saw, uh, when these mystics saw this thing happen in the temple, they thought it must have also happened, you know, in the higher planes of reality, basically. When they saw the lady getting kicked out of the temple, some of them, or most of them, or all of them, or a stream of them, or the ones who became Gnostics, thought, oh my god, well, if she's kicked out of the temple, she must be kicked out of the pleroma, too. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, like, exactly, as above, so below, the two things, the two things unproblematically mirror each other. This is exactly, or, or to, to take a different view, I mean, if you imagine them having a slightly more modern mind of it, they're, they're using cosmological narrative as a way to metaphorically talk about the, the situation in the world. But you're exactly right. Yes. So, like, Sophia literally gets kicked out of the temple, out of the Holy of Holies itself, out of the Pleroma, and she's thrown into, quite literally, popular worship amongst the ordinary people of Jerusalem. She's thrown into the world and dispersed into the world. <laughs> and despite the prayers of the people, cannot rise back into the Pleroma because the Pleroma is no longer accessible because the gate to it, the Holy of Holies, no longer exists. Yeah. And then what we see, you know, this sort of dualism you see in, in particularly in Sethian Gnosticism between the world of the Pleroma, the world of the First Father, and the world of the Demiurge, the Iconic Realm, the Ionic Realm and the Iconic Realm that we've talked about before. Um, that duality is depicted exactly in the return of the exiles. <laughs> the, se the, temp the temple's rebuilt, so we have a new heaven. The temple is the is is the model of the world and the and the symbol of heaven, and so a new heaven is built. But it is an unrecognizable heaven ruled over by a strange god, served you know in a, an authoritarian mode by you know evil angels. <laughs> Yeah. creating little, a bad little, world in which people are oppressed so, and forced to live because the, the, the Hebrew sort, people sort of by this literal point, archons you know, in, in the temple like there's exactly. literally because archon means wandering around this, this second temple this corruptish pale copy of heaven ruled by an unrecognizable inferior god right and the original heaven the original creation is lost to us it's gone it's been erased we can't get to it anymore. All we can do is try to get to it in our own hearts. It's no longer accessible to us as the temple. So this open source version of it all, for the first time, offers the glimmer of a possibility. So, I mean, just, you know, like all the bits through the Gospel of John where Jesus makes various visits to the temple and essentially says, this is over with. <laughs> this thing you're doing, it's irrelevant. You might as well just knock it down because and By the way, I've got done. this rope. And I'm going to hit you with it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stand back, pigeon seller. <laughs> um, we already talked about this, but uh, but of course, in Gnosticism, um, well, I shouldn't so, say sorry, blah, blah, just, or... just, just to Go ahead. Jonathan, just to just to kind of finish that point off. Just from that point, like once the Babylonians invade um, Judah, the people of Israel are never again free of foreign domination. Mm -hmm. That's true. They're a colonized people from that point all the way to their ultimate, um, the ultimate beginning of the diaspora, destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, the Romans destroy the temple, they drive the people out of Jerusalem, and there's the beginning of the exit of Jewish people from that part of the world, which has persisted until this century, or this last century. So, like, like literally there are foreign rulers ruling over the people, ruling over creation itself. So, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, that's, all, a, that's, that's a great this point. Is the, this is the thing. Like in a, yeah. in a in a modern mind, we make a big distinction between physics, spirituality, politics. You know, these are all different realms of concern, and they're they're ruled over by different rules. But in a in a pre-modern head, it's all the same thing. Yes. What happens in the political environment? What happens in the re religious environment? What happens in the spiritual environment? It's it's all the same thing. It's it's yeah. not separate. Anyway. Yeah, that, that's a good so point. And, and what take is, that what one, does Donald that Trump have to say about it? <laughs> yeah. Uh. The um, we, the we talked a little bit. Back and he's dominating the Iowa caucus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
and, and also you're talking about the pre pre modern mind in general, but kind of specifically this temple theology thought is it is I mean we talked about it in some ways that, that it's it's kind of platonic, but in other ways it's not very Greek at all. It it doesn't put things into these clearly demarcated boxes. It's very poetic. It's, it's shifting sands. It's breaking down these barriers. Um, Absolutely true. The, so we just uh, in a few minutes. I mean you. Using temple theology, you explain the origins of Sophia as we know her from, say, the Gospel of, uh, or sorry, the the Book of Secret John. Uh, you explain the the origins of the demiurge. Uh, you explain the, the creation of the world. You explain the archon. So we, we really can connect uh, um, a lot of the stuff that we see in Gnosticism's origins to that, uh, uh, to this to this uh, uh, temple theology, to this um, to this thought. Um, and we, we already kind of talked about this before, but but again, the um, the, the sociology, the, the way that you get saved, is 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 through theosis, and it is kind of specifically through having a gnostic experience. You know, you don't you don't figure it out. You don't you know you, you don't do it by following a bunch of rules or reading a bunch of books. You actually do have to have a kind of a, a powerful ascent experience. Uh, where where you have this this unity with the uh, with the first day of creation is is that correct? Yeah, it's definitely it, it's theosis is critical. It's a critical part of soteriology. As to how, I mean, I think there are different ways of figuring how that's done, and and ascent is one of those ways. Um, but I think there's probably different schools of thought about how one goes about actually attaining theosis. I mean, the, the, in the way the First Temple stuff is told to us, and the way Barker pieces it together, there's not a lot of indication that the High Priest undergoes a kind of ascent. The, uh, the High Priest walks into the Holy of Holies, the curtain is, the veil is parted, the High Priest walks in, he's in day one. He doesn't go through a process of getting to day one, he's just in day one. So, um, not to say, like, there's also walking up of steps, right, and, and so on. Like, the, the, there's a literal ascent. Um, but I think probably what happens, the, the, the activity around the throne that sits in the Holy of Holies, um, you know, you see that mirrored in Merkabah mysticism much later uh, in, in Jewish mystical practice. So there's, I mean, in, in a sense, all Abrahamic, if I can say, you know, Abrahamic um, mysticism tilts back in the direction of temple mysticism. Right. Ultimately, all Abrahamic mysticism, whether it's Jewish, Christian, or, or Muslim, all eventually, you know, the, the experiential basis of all mysticism comes back to, ultimately, this is about entering into that state of oneness. Yeah. It's about entering into, to begin with, to becoming Christ, to becoming anointed, to stand in the place of the high priest and become the incarnation of the Lord, which is right. the... That's not, the, that's not the end goal. That's the first step. That's the first step. Yeah. <laughs> to be not a Christian but a Christ. To become anointed with the person of the Lord and then to enter into oneness with the Most High. Um, is in, Christian, in the Christian form, in the Jewish form, it takes a different form. It's about um, taking on a vision of the, of the throne and moving into a, a closer and closer relationship with the Most High. In, um, in Sufi mysticism in Islam, it's about the remembrance of God, of, of, of not, like, and that's, that's really striking because it's not going through a series of steps. It's remembering that, that one's fundamental nature in its original essence is the Most High. Hey, amnesia, basically, the, the, the remembrance of the Lord, yeah. And amnesia, yeah. yeah. Zikr, they say in, in Arabic. Yeah. Uh, Father Tony, so we have gotten through a fair amount of of, uh, of our notes. Uh, we, we uh, of course, our viewers and listeners at home can't see our pages and pages of notes that we have for this show. Which is a, so, uh, as someone who's, who's a little. <laughs> Someone who's a little bit newer to to all this, and I'm still like I, I'm still I still have a thousand more rabbit holes to go down. But I, I'm just wondering if you have some some more questions and some more points, or if this has stirred anything stirred anything up. Yeah, help 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 bring us back to earth, Father. <laughs> uh, I I don't know if I can. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I mean just thinking about some of the things that I've been working on lately. You know, we talk about the Gnostic ascent stuff all the time. And you know you touched on that just now, and and kind of what that what that means and everything. What I guess what does uh, 
What does a, what does a temple theology practice look like? Kind of imagine it in kind of a pure form, you know, in abstraction. What you know, what does a, a practitioner of temple theology do? It's a really good question. I don't think we have great answers for that. Mm -hmm. um, when Barker talks about it, she talks about the, the mystical view as the view of the high priest in the temple. Um, because that's what we've got recorded in sources. Uh, uh, Enoch, 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 <laughs> as Jonathan and I keep saying to each other. Because just the number of times that um, most of Enoch is written, it, it's mostly temple theology. She says most of the Apocryphon of John is, is temple theology. It's mostly yes. um, recording a view of, of, of cosmology from the point of view of the first temple. Um, so what's getting recorded is what happens for priests and specifically for the high priest in, in their interaction with the Holy of Holies. So it doesn't tell us what it looks like um, outside of the context of the temple. It just tells us what it looked like in the temple. And what it looked like in the temple was, was they don't record practices. It's mm -hmm. entering into the Holy of Holies, um, yeah. which, you know, uh, just to kind of to nail that down for listeners because um, I wasn't really aware of this, although it is, it is kind of recorded in some detail in the Bible. The Holy of Holies is a cubical room um, lined with gold and filled with light, like, so literally lamps um, that, that create light. But just, just imagine for a second what the physical experience of that's like, right? So there's objects in it, but largely you're dealing with a room with mirrored gold walls with lamps inside. Uh, there's a veil that goes all the way around the outside of it. And so like a, imagine a curtain made of a single piece. Barker suggested it kind of goes all the way around and kind of overlaps at the entrance to it. So to enter in, the priest has to kind of go in through the behind the curtain and then kind of double back and come into the room. You enter into this room, which is entirely light, um, in the middle of which is the throne of God, the, the cherubim throne, with the four living creatures holding the sides of it with their wings you know, touching across the back, mm -hmm. um, and the menorah, there's these holy sacred items in it. So you're in a room where your entire field of vision is just overcome with brilliant golden light. <laughs> your, your capacity, you know, for, for a person for whom this is just, they're just thrust into this vision, it's extremely, you know, it, it sort of challenges your sense of self, right? Because you orient yourself through vision. You're just overwhelmed with this vast field of light. The, the closest analogy I can um, I can think of is there's a sci-fi movie called Sunshine. I think it's about a they, they send a spaceship to the sun to try and drop some atom bombs and stop the, the sun from exploding. Mm. And there's this scene where right at the beginning a character's kind of standing on the the observation deck and he kind of um, puts a pair of sunglasses on, and rolls up the blind at the front of it, and is just like he almost loses his mind from the brilliance of the sun. Just, sorry, really interesting sidebar. Yeah. Um, the great lady, wisdom, um, according to archaeological evidence, is the sun. Oh, yeah. We're so used to thinking of the sun as a masculine goddess and the moon as the feminine goddess, but in, in the temple stance, the rising sun is the image of wisdom herself. Right. That's really, I just, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> the sun and part, and part. And Barker talks talks about that as well, and, and I can't remember which Old Testament book it is, but he says he and uh, and she brings she brings healing in her wings, which is also a reference to the sun. Uh, you know, originally it was it was she brings healing in her wings is is you know that's a phrase that we know from the Old Testament. It's later repurposed. She also loves the Book of Revelation. Like her two favorite books in the world are Enoch and the Book of Revelation, and she references them endlessly. Um, temple, 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 temple. temple, temple. Mm -hmm. so, she also talks about the Lady of the Sun, the division of the Lady and the Sun, uh, which is both S-U-N and S-O-N in the Book of Revelation, which is which is a great lady. So we are running out of time, I think, but I did want to these. I wanted to read a few things that come straight from Margaret Barker's work. So I'm not over exaggerating, and these are things that she said. But she says that uh, Jesus, during basically the flight to Egypt, when his family lived there. Uh, studies the lore, forgotten lore, the mysticism of the first temple. So he uh, he learns this uh, this forgotten tradition in Egypt because this was sort of an exiled tradition. And Barker says that a lot of these uh, these Hebrews and these these first temple uh, practitioners uh, kind of uh, made a, a a beachhead in Egypt. So she says that Jesus learned a lot of it there. And when he comes back to to uh, to Palestine to Galilee, uh, he kind of meets up with John the Baptist, who's also part of the stream. Probably Jesus is looking for other 
people who are in this, this mystical stream. And John the Baptist initiates Jesus into the secret suppressed tradition. And then, of course, he's going to draw both apostles who, are, who don't know about this tradition and apostles who do know about this tradition. And one of his apostles is uh, John the Evangelist, who for Barker is also uh, John the Presbyter, the same person. And uh, this John, uh, the, the disciple of Jesus, is, uh, is actually a priest, one of these priests that's been kicked out of the temple and is carrying on the tradition. And it's kind of John who both gets the, uh, the mystical aspects of the of the temple theology and it's his community that best preserves it so does any of that kind of sound familiar <laughs> to johannine at all it does ring a few bells <laughs> yeah and for, for listeners at home who, who aren't that familiar with the ajc that those are all you know teachings that have been um or or traditions i should say in, in our community for a very long time in the Johanna nine community going back you know at least to the 1800s and and barker isn't necessarily familiar with with these traditions she she's getting them from her research and her and her reading so she's also kind of uncovered these or believes these or has found evidence for these but it's not like you know she's necessarily reading fabry palaprat or or others um so it is yeah, it is I find it quite interesting that she's she is basically you know saying the same thing that we're saying, but with uh, with some different sources. Totally, I, I I probably should jump in at that point and say um, you know when when we're not pretending that this is kind of you know telling the truth that we've got this secret um, priestly lineage yes. that dates back to the first temple. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean you're com completely right that when you read those passages from Barker and you reflect on kind of you know the 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 narrative that we, you know, the, the sort of the various myths we we preserve as kind of the origins of the Joanite tradition and um, what what we talk about, um, there's a there's a very clear kind of um, connection and reflection. There's various ways in which those reflections could have come up. You know, it's not necessarily a, a valid origin story, um, but it is kind of reassuring that some that there's some flavour of what it is we're trying to do um, w with making a Joanite church in the 21st century that. That does seem to legitimately connect to to um, this this theory about the earliest origins of Christianity. Um, we can only hope that we're you know making a decent fist of it as as heirs of that that ancient tradition. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, I hope we are. Yeah. I'd like to think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that we are going to have a lot to talk about at the uh, conclave in May. <laughs> so you should uh, all wait. Let's see. It's probably time for that commercial. There's a conclave in May. Yeah, no. Every year, the uh, Apostolic Joanite Church has, uh, gets together, and and uh, mostly clergy, but some some of our laity as well. Uh, you know, come and, and hang out, and uh, friends of the church. You know, um, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Kupperman, who's been on the show a number of times. Uh, he's been out to the last several, even though he's not a member of our church, but he's uh, he's friends of ours, and so we like to see him come out and other other folks. Uh, uh, Greg Kaminsky will be here this year giving a presentation, and uh, and 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 Bishop Tim Mansfield will be joining us uh, once again, as in addition to your humble hosts as well. So, um, if you are interested in that, yeah, Dr. Karen King and Dr. Karen, Dr. King, Karen yes. King, yes. So the, the world's foremost uh, uh, expert on the on the Secret Book of John. Yes, absolutely, and I am going to so totally fanboy that it's going to be embarrassing for all of us. <laughs> so look forward to that as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you sign my book, please? Like, can we talk we for an hour and a half? But you could jostle each other. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be great, and I suspect we'll probably have a little bit to talk about the uh, Gospel of Jesus's wife, which is uh, an interesting and timely thing that uh, that we will have a conversation about. I'm sure. So you don't want to miss that. Is May 12th through the 17th? Am I right about that? Uh, I think you are. I believe so. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, come for the whole week, come for the weekend. It will be taking place in and about the area of, uh, of Arlington, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. And, uh, yeah. and I'll be DJing the after party at uh, Father Tony's house. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, yes. So bring yeah, your. The after party, Kager. So yeah, please. Yeah. Bring bring your um, you know your glow sticks and your. I, I don't know what the kids do these days. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, joeandite.org slash conclave2016 for the website for that. 
uh, new reduced price, but you got to get your own hotel room now. So that's uh, that's that's the the trade-off. So if you are local, especially to the greater Boston area, uh, you know, come come for that. That'll be a, that'll be a good time, and you'll get to meet us. And uh, you know, that in and of itself is worth the price of admission, right, guys? Yes. Yeah. Totally. Anyway, that's about it. That's all we have time for. So can I just just one quick one quick thing, Father, if I can, just yeah. before we just before we sign off. Like Jonathan and I are obsessed with this stuff, and um, hopefully we've succeeded in the, in the course of this program of of uh, you know bringing a few other people sort of to the outer fringes of that obsession. If you've heard this stuff and any of it kind of you know lands for you, or you think it's interesting, or there's anything you want to give us feedback about, or question, or or add your own thoughts on, um, please send feedback for the program and, and uh, Father Tony and Jonathan will, will make sure that, that we all see it. Um, I'd love to engage with people about this stuff. I find it completely fascinating. So that's all. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, so yeah, put your comments in the uh, either the blog post here or send Jonathan an email, uh, uh, which is what, Jonathan at GnosticWisdom.net, I believe? Jonathan at GnosticWisdom.net. So, uh, and we'll get that information shared around and, and all kinds of uh, conversations can happen from that. That'll be fantastic. And I hear the music starting, so I think that's our cue to wrap up. Thank you once again, Bishop Mansfield, for a fantastic conversation. Uh, I always Thanks enjoy talking much. to you, and so we're so glad that we could have you, uh, have you on the show. And for those of you who are listening along at home, we will see you next week. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c. 